You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest American who ever lived, once actually said that in an interview. He made Bill Gates look like a poor person. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. Solomon, king of Israel. He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Socrates. There is no fire like passion, no shark like hatred. There is no snare like folly. There is no torrent like greed. Buddha, manifest plainness, embrace simplicity, reduce selfishness, have few desires. Lao Tzu, the highest wealth is the absence of greed. Seneca, Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, said if there were two valleys of gold for a son of Adam, he would long for another one. The Hadith, As soon as the land of any country has become private property, the landlords, like all other men, love to reap where they have never sowed and demand a rent even for its natural produce. Adam Smith. Money is therefore not only the object, but also the fountainhead of greed. The mania for possessions is possible without money. Karl Marx. Earth provides enough to satisfy every man's needs, but not every man's greed. Gandhi. Well, first of all, Tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. Milton Friedman, who won a Nobel Prize for understanding people and money. That's 3,000 years of people telling you, very smart people telling you, that greed exists and that it's bad. But you didn't need that because you already agree. And that's amazing. We all agree across thousands of years, social, racial, linguistic, economic, geographic, religious barriers. And we all agree there must genuinely be a problem with humanity. But this thing doesn't seem to be going away. If anything, it seems to be getting stronger. The Christian story would tell you that there is something genuinely wrong with humanity. There's something sick at the very core of us. And the word we use to describe that sickness is sin with a capital S. And sin with a capital S has many symptoms, lowercase s. Greed is one of them. Greed isn't actually the problem. Greed is one of the symptoms of the problem. The problem, very simply, is that we are bad at love. We're bad at love as human beings. We love the wrong things at the wrong times in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. And greed is a wonderful example of that, where we love things. We love things more than we love people. We love money, the acquisition, the use and the hoarding of it more than we love our children more than we love time at rest more than we love food more than we love many good things more than we love God we're bad at love and that's the problem with greed we're in this series called this greater than that 
And we're talking about virtues and vices on our way to Easter and the cross. Talking about those in light of the cross. And today we're going to talk about generosity greater than greed. Generosity greater than greed. Would you turn with me in a Bible to 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. And I'm going to use a real Bible. Because why not? It's old school. 1 Timothy 6, 6. We're going to read some verses I'm going to skip, and then we're going to read some more verses. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Skip into verse 17. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, but to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The life that really is life. We all want to take hold of that. We get a piece of that. How do we get that? The good news is it is being offered to you all of the time. At a very reasonable price. Did you know that right now well-qualified lessees can get a Toyota Tacoma for only $225 a month? A brand new one. And you should not miss out on a deal like this. You should probably go to Credit Karma right now and find out how your credit score is doing. And if those guys can't help you, then maybe the guys at NerdWallet, because they could help you get a credit card that could probably help you build credit. Maybe the, I don't know, the Capital One, no-hassle situation. They've been building brand new banks. They've, they're moving at a brand new speed when it comes to banking. Or maybe the Chase Sapphire card, because that thing's amazing. The kind of points it gives, oh my gosh. You should talk to Safe Auto because they offer insurance for the rest of us. And when you get all of those things together, you can get in your car with your girl at your side and the dog in the back seat, roll down the windows and just be laughing with your feet out the window. You can head to California in one of their many wonderful beaches. Come see California. Sit on the beach, have a beer, maybe a carefully curated craft beverage by one of the good people at Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> I didn't have to show you anything, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I didn't have to do any research for that. I just stopped and thought about the sorts of ads and the sorts of things that they say. Now, each ad on its own really doesn't do very much, but together, they give us a pretty clear picture of the good life, don't they? We know what it looks like. You can picture some of those commercials. And you might think, well, just because I remember those commercials doesn't mean that they're working. It doesn't mean that I'm going to buy those things. It doesn't mean that they've really affected me. I'm much too smart. I'm much too savvy for that. Fortune 500 companies are betting that you're wrong. And they didn't get where they are by being bad at money. They employ teams of psychologists to try and crack into your brains and hearts and heads. And oh, by the way, they get to read your emails now that you have a Google account. 
and they get to see your pictures now that you have a Facebook account. And they get to know your likes and dislikes because of Pinterest and all other social media. They know your browsing history because of Amazon and all the third-party games that you play on your phone for free that are tracking you wherever you go. Not to mention the Safeway Club card and all the other things that we do all of the time. Advertisers aren't even embarrassed about this. If you go online to associations, they will brag. We are advertising so well that 10 years ago, you couldn't even call those ads. We're incredible at it now. We can absolutely deliver what we are promising, and what we are promising is you. Google refers to you as their product, not their customer, their product. We are being sold, and we are being trained in the art of consumption. Now, maybe you think that's not happening. Hasbro and Mattel have honestly been busted for targeted ads aimed at six-month-olds. That's month, six-month-olds, Hasbro and Mattel. There is viral marketing and guerrilla marketing happening all around us all the time. Friends of yours are undoubtedly paid by companies to represent products and not tell you about it. You know that that's happening on Instagram. You know that that's happening in real life. All the time, we know this. How many ads do you think you see a day? Just somebody shout out a number. How many ads do you think you see a day? 200, not nearly high enough. Four to 10,000 ads a day. The average American, some see more than that. Four to 10,000 ads a day. You don't think that that's having an effect on you? You don't think that that constant messaging, that barrage, is having an effect on you? It absolutely is. Just one example. In America, we have 4% of the world's children. We have 40% of the world's toys. Four zero. Is that because we need more toys than the people in other countries? Is that because we're wealthier than people in other countries? Or is it because someone has convinced us that we need more toys? More and more and more and more. There's a book on the seven deadly sins that a guy named Dennis Ockholm wrote. And in it, he, he sort of blames a lot of this advertising on the, uh, the Industrial Revolution. He says, when factories started to create a huge gap between production and consumption, and they were producing more cereal and cigarettes and other products than we consume, rather than produce less, they sought to increase consumption, to increase demand to meet supply. But that would, of course, require teaching consumption as a way of life, with money-back guarantees, credits, branding, mail order, and advertisements. The American consumer was trained and habituated. Uh, one of the early ad execs at Quaker Oats. My aim was to do educational and constructive work so as to awaken an interest in and create a demand for cereal where none existed. And that's just cereal. Watch out, says Paul. Be content with food and clothing. There is great gain in godliness with contentment because a lot of people fall into traps and there is absolutely a conspiracy going on. People are trying to trap you and lead you into temptation. You've got to learn to spot the lie. Spot the lie, the, the fantasy you are being sold and a lot of other things that you are being sold along with it. The truth is we live in America. We are greedy. It's a way of life for our people. The good news is, I can guarantee that we all suffer from this problem, which means we all should spend a lot more time listening to what scripture has to say about money and desire and what we do with our will and how 
we act in the day-to-day world because we know that greed leads to terrible things in people's lives. So we need to spot the lie. There's a friend of mine who is doing a brilliant thing as a parent. It uh, just blows my mind every time. He plays a game with his kids. So when TV comes on, because you can't avoid watching TV with your kids, he has a 7, a 9, and an 11-year-old. When TV is on and the switches to the ads, they don't ignore them. They don't pretend like they're not there. They watch the ads more closely than the TV show. So all of a sudden, it'll switch to commercials, and they'll say, spot the lie. And the kids will literally, like it's a game, and one of them will go, if... If I drive that truck, I'll be taller. No. If, if I drive that truck, I'm going to go, I'm going to be able to do anything I want. Bingo. Candy. If I drink that beer, people will like me? No. Women will like me. Bingo. Candy. If I, if I buy that credit card, I can go on adventures? Yes. And they give credit cards away for free. For free? Yeah, it sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Spot the lie. That is a good game to play, people, with the Facebook ads and the Google banners and the YouTube pop-ups and all of the things that are coming at you all the time, literally 10,000 times a day. Spot the lie. Because we know, we know absolutely that the love of money leads to ruin and destruction. The language Paul uses is not of people who start out to be greedy. Nobody ever starts out to become greedy, to become a deeply materialistic person who places all of their value in stuff and in money. That's not how it starts. It's accidental, Paul says. You fall into it, into traps and things. You reach, he says, for gain, and then you lose your balance. You sink into ruin and into destruction. He, no point, at no point in this passage does he use the word greed. Instead, he talks about the love of money. He talks about the desire for gain. He talks about the pride of the wealthy. And again, you might think, well, the word greedy to me means people like Ebenezer Scrooge. The Christmas Carol, like a miser, a crazy cartoonish figure, real villains, Bernie Madoff, people that you remember vaguely from the news and destroying the stock market and other people's lives or hoarders, right? And the TV show where people are just crazy and they have way too many possessions. But I'm not, I'm not greedy. I just, all I want, all I want is a little bit more money. All I want is just peace and security. All I want is a little bit a nicer living room. All I want is just a couch that feels a little bit better. That's how it starts, says Paul, with all I want. It's not that much. It's it's just a little bit more. All I want. Some of you are thinking, again, that you're really good with money, and you probably are, and there's no possibility that you agree because you're so good with money. And you know how much money you're spending. You know exactly where it's going. You've got a really good budget. You would never accidentally spend money. You always intentionally spend money. And it could be for you that at some point you're really bad with money, And you know now that that was just a terrible way of life and you've climbed out of debt, sort of clawed your way out of it and you're not going to live that way anymore and you've you've really locked down your spending. Good. That's wonderful. You should know that many monks in the history of the church have warned us that sometimes really good stewardship is a cover for greed. That you won't even realize it. But because you're constantly thinking about money and constantly thinking about where it's going and constantly controlling it, that you may actually be leading yourself into trouble. He says to the rich, watch out. Watch out for pride in riches. God has given us these things for our enjoyment. Not so that we'll be better than other people. Not so that we'll have money and be safe and secure and solid. But so that we would enjoy the life that we've been given. Uh, Remember, Ebenezer Scrooge 
was great with money. That's not contested in A Christmas Carol. He's incredible with money. He is a miser. He won't light the lights at his house. He won't buy himself a new dressing gown. He won't heat his office in London in the middle of winter because that's too much of a luxury for his employees. But he's great with money and incredibly wealthy. He's just not at all generous. Watch out. Money, if it, for you, if money is about safety and security and control, watch out. There's a friend of mine who during Lent has given up checking his apps, checking his stock market app, checking his, uh, well, his Wall Street Journal subscription, checking his um, bank account um, with his debit card. And he, we were sitting together and he says this to me and he says, it's not that I've decided to become worse with money for Lent. It's that I just, I realized I'm spending so much time looking at how much money is in our bank account, or how much time I'm spending tracking where my stocks are going and how my retirement's doing. And I just, I think it's about control for me and I think it's about my identity and my value and I just don't like it. And the notifications, I just, I've turned it all off and I just don't know what's happening right now. I do know it's been the worst week in the stock market in recent history, but I'm, I'm trying not to think too much about that. And actually I've, I've really been enjoying my life a lot more. I've, I've been more generous lately because I'm not worried about where every penny is going. Now again, maybe you, the idea of apps and checking your retirement for you is what people do that. So you might not actually have that, but you may have a very different problem with money and that's okay. Um, you might actually make jokes about how you're kind of a hoarder in life, uh, that other people maybe make jokes with you about how you're kind of a hoarder in life. It's not about money for you. It's just that you happen to have more shoes than anyone could ever wear in the course of a week. And for some of you, maybe in the course of a month, you may have more t-shirts actually than a person could ever wear. And the truth is they're really sentimental and it's from high school. And I'm just not going to give this up, even though I've filled several drawers with t-shirts and I'm unwilling to give them up. I'm confessing that one to you that frequently my wife just makes t-shirts disappear in our house. And I'm sad, but the truth is I didn't notice for eight months, so it's okay. I have someone in my life forcing me not to be a hoarder. It is possible that that is a problem for you. I went, by the way, watching the TV show Hoarders. I've seen it before, and some of you have seen it before, and it's entertaining and it's funny. But I tried to watch it for clips because I thought maybe it would amuse us today. It was terrifying. It was honestly, you, when you read the Bible and then you watch a show like that, you're like, oh no. Oh, this is... This is so scary. This is so sad. You see people living in a nightmare who don't really want to leave. And they know they're living in a nightmare. They know there are stacks of newspaper from 30 years ago, and they've created a maze in their house to get from one room to the next room. That there are cans that they touch and say, this expired 10 years ago. No one will ever eat this. And then they put it back on the shelf, and you think, oh my gosh, this is insane. It's like looking at people who are addicted to heroin. It looks exactly the same, but they don't have a TV show about that because that would be too dark and too sad and also illegal. We're fine with hoarding. We're fine with destroying people's lives that way. Certain sins in our culture are okay. They're just silly. Other sins in our culture are not okay. They will destroy you. Incidentally, the ones that we really don't like have a strong tendency to get in the way of people being productive members of society. Consistently, we don't like drug addiction and we don't like alcohol abuse because they get in the way of people doing their job. It's disconcerting, actually, how concerned we are about money. And the deeper you go back in history, the more you'll realize it's really affected people's attitudes. The best arguments for slavery are economic ones. And they're everywhere in the history of slavery. The best arguments for slavery are, look at all this free labor. Well, it's not really free, no, but it's free to me. The best arguments for sex trafficking 
are economic ones. We know people are slaves all around the world because it's good business. The best arguments against climate change, against environmentalism, against treating food fairly, economic ones, it's just too expensive. The best arguments for sending all the labor overseas, for child labor, economic ones. It's amazing, really, when you think about how often we think about money and how poorly we seem to use it as a society that has as much of it as we have. Watch out, says Paul. People will fall into all sorts of traps and temptations and you will sink and it will ruin you and it will destroy you. A little while ago, my friend uh, was helping clean out the home of his wife's grandfather. So his grandfather-in-law, if that's a thing. And he died. And the man was quirky. Nice guy, but quirky. And when you would go to his house and you would use his bathroom, you would notice there was no toilet paper. And you would have to go out and ask, and his wife would roll her eyes and go find toilet paper and bring it to you. You found out later that actually it was a strategy of his to not waste money on guests who came over and their toilet paper needs. He was a quirky guy. And you would go into rooms of his house and three out of four of the light bulbs would be burned out. And it wasn't because they couldn't afford light bulbs. It was because if we replace the light bulbs, then we have to spend the money on the electricity. And the truth is, we'd have to spend the money on the light bulbs. So we'll just save money in that way. He and his wife would occasionally find things by the side of the road and use them, which seems really frugal and really good, like wearing a pair of shoes you found by the side of the road. It's weird, but actually it's, you know, you could kind of, that's okay. They really didn't want to waste things. And then when he died, there was this day, my friend is exploring the house, and um, the niece comes upstairs, and she's seven. She says, I found a gun. Okay, so they go down to the basement, shouldn't be finding guns, and found many guns, not one, many, many guns. And not really stored well or taken care of, but actually some very rare and some very valuable weapons. It was strange. And the basement wasn't like a mess, and it wasn't like a hoarder nest. There was just, you know, stuff that had accumulated, tools that he didn't really need, and things that were sort of in piles and documents and places. So my friend's cleaning out the chimney, because there's a stack of documents in the chimney. And he's pulling things out, and all of a sudden he bumps one of the bricks. And when he bumps one of the bricks, it falls out. And behind the brick, there are four stock receipts, each for $10,000 each, from 40 years ago. He found a quarter million dollars in stocks in the fireplace. No one knew they were there. When they went upstairs and they talked to the wife, she didn't know that they owned those stocks and didn't know that he'd spent that money in the first place. Not the healthiest thing I've ever heard of. And by the way, if anyone had lit a fire, that wouldn't be so good. And the more they explored the basement, the more they found things like gold coins in the back of a desk drawer or an actual bar of gold under some rags, propping something up or blue chip stocks in different places. I kid you not, they found millions of dollars millions, plural, of dollars that his wife didn't know that they had, that his children didn't know that they had. This was a man who was unwilling to buy toilet paper for guests. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful, Paul says. God has given this to us for our enjoyment. If you're going to be rich, be rich in good works. Be rich in generosity. Be rich in loving the people around you. That's the kind of riches we're going for because that's the kind of riches that God has. If you're pursuing another kind of wealth, you will find that you are trying to fill a hole inside of you with something that only makes the hole bigger. That's the problem with greed. It never satisfies. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Schopenhauer said that gold is like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And that seems to be the cycle that people get into. There's a Jacques Ellul quote. He wrote a book called Money and Power, and it's fantastic. 
And he says this, a person's hunger for money is always a sign, the semblance of another hunger for power or certainty. Love of money is always a sign of another need to protect oneself, to be Superman for survival or what better means to attain all this than wealth. In our frantic, breathless search, we are not looking for enjoyment alone. We are looking, without realizing it, for eternity. Now, money does not satisfy our hunger or respond to our love. We are on the wrong road. We have used the wrong means. We are on the wrong road. We have used the wrong means. We have placed our hope in the wrong place. That's what Paul keeps saying. You want to place your hope on God Place your hope in a place where it is secure, not on the uncertainty of riches. Again, the stock market this week, if your hope had been in your stocks and in your retirement, it was a rough week for you. If your hope was placed somewhere else, it was an annoying week for you. But the money wasn't the ultimate concern. Watch out. You may be trying to fill a need in you that only God can fill. It all comes back to these disordered loves we were talking about. How human beings are bad at love. And that always ends us up in really weird and strange places. We have a strong tendency to love things that are not God as though they were God. We have a strong tendency to love things as though they were not people, as though maybe they were people. We we get confused with love all of the time. This is what the Bible says is our fundamental problem. Some of those people I was reading before would disagree, actually, about the solution to the problem. We're all agreed on the nature of the problem. The Buddhist would say the problem is that you care too much. You should care less about the world. The communist would say the problem is owning things at all. No one should own anything. Uh, The capitalist would say greed is bad and inevitable. Everyone should be equally greedy and we will limit the effect of greed in that way. And what the Bible would say is those may or may not be decent solutions along the way, but ultimately you're not going to get at the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that you have turned to something that is not God as though it was And as long as you love that thing, it will let you down. It will not respond to your love. It will not respond in the way that you want it to. It will let you down at the moment that you absolutely need it, and you'll feel like someone who's accidentally stabbed themselves. Again, that's the language of Paul. They have pierced themselves with many pains. The story the Bible tells um, when it comes to sin is not so much that we're not trying hard enough. It's not so much that we we need more effort or the right kind of effort. It's that ultimately we're in a pit that we got into and we can't get out of. And what we need is someone to come and save us from this pit. Someone who knows where we are and knows who we are, but also is stronger than we are. What we need is someone who is exactly like us and nothing like us. We need God in the flesh. This is the story of the Bible. Someone who can rescue us because he knows exactly who we are and someone who can rescue us because he's so much stronger than we are. And this is the message of the cross. This is the message of the resurrection. This is the message of the incarnation. This is the stuff that we talk about. That that ultimately we would say that greed will always be a problem if your hope is not set on Jesus Christ. And Jesus in the New Testament will say things like, you can't serve God and money. You're going to pick one. And I can guarantee you that a lot of people who don't think they're picking money are picking money. All the time. And it will let you down. Turn to Jesus. By the way, it is not bad to be wealthy. That's not actually what this passage says. There are some really, really wealthy people who place all of their hope on God. And as a result, they manage to be wealthy because they're not striving constantly after the new thing that they could buy or the cool thing that they could get 
or the next great prize or the next cool investment. And as a result, they're able to be really, really generous. This text isn't saying you should be as poor as you possibly can. Poverty is great, live poor. That is not what this is saying. What this is saying is learn to live simply. Learn to live contentedly. Learn to place your hope on Jesus. And the more you place your hope on Jesus, the more you'll find you have this power to be generous. You can't take hold of the life that is really life as long as you're clinging to another life. You can't take hold of the things that God is offering as long as you are clinging to your money. If you can let go of your money, you will consistently find that you can take hold of what God is offering you. The language the Bible consistently uses of greed is that it's idolatry. It's the worship of another God, of a false God, a man-made kind of a God, something that does offer power and security and safety and all of the sorts of things that you need and that you want. Jacques Ellul in another book will actually say that the best thing you can do when it comes uh, to this false God is to give it the middle finger uh, by giving your money away. Generosity, giving, is absolutely, absolutely opposed to the idolatry of greed. You cannot give money away and also hoard money. They're mutually exclusive. And the more money you give away, the more you rip power away from this false God and the more you put it in the hands of the real God. And along the way, when you give money away, you invite other people into a world of grace. They get to experience grace in this strange, small, and economic way. It's amazing. There were some friends of mine some years ago, um, actually Jess and I, there was a couple, and they were deep Christians and they, they loved Jesus, uh, but their life was hard. And it was hard because they didn't have a lot of money. And we loved them a lot. And it was, it was sort of hard to watch because everything was really good. They spent lots of time with each other as a family and they did a lot of things that, that you would want to do, but they struggled to pay bills all the time and they struggled actually to, to give gifts to people. And that actually really bothered them. And one day the guy just got fed up with it and got a different job and the job was incredible. And because the job was incredible, he immediately bought a new car. So they were making more money and he immediately was in more debt than he was. And the car was a status symbol and that's exactly why he bought it, as a symbol of the fact that they weren't as poor as they used to be. And they, he started just living the life. He spent much less time with his children because he had to spend much more time at work. He spent much less time with his wife because he had to spend much more time at work. He spent much less time serving in his community and much less time in his Bible study, and much less time leading in the local church because he had to do all of these other things. And actually, little by little, he found himself going on trips with people, millionaires, to places like Vegas. And man, could you spend money at a craps table? And people would drink like crazy, and they'd go to meetings at strip clubs, and people would definitely be cheating on their spouses, and he'd come home to this boring life with these boring children and this boring wife. And his wife started to try and call him on it, and it didn't really work. And there was this point at which she realized, I have to choose. I have to choose between him or the life that we really want in Christ. And if I choose the life we really want in Christ, I'm going to constantly critique him, and I'm not sure that we're going to make it. And she picks him. And it's the weirdest thing in the world, because honestly, we look at these people, and it's really hard, because we know what they used to be like, and we know what their life is like now. And they would say they're happier and the world would say they are more successful. And I disagree. Absolutely disagree. But I can tell you that everybody else would say, good job. Things are really turning up for you. You guys are doing great. It's disconcerting. Another story. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church that was in downtown Phoenix. And the church had been built about four years before the Great Depression hit. And you may not know what the Great Depression was. It was a pretty bad time in the United States of America. Um, hence, depression, great. It was a bad time. 
for the economy. And a lot of people lost their jobs, and a lot of people had trouble buying food, just basic things. They were really struggling. And the church, which had just been built, had a real financial problem because a lot of the people who'd been tithing didn't have incomes anymore. And they were also trying to serve all of these people who were now poor and destitute in the city. And they really didn't know what to do. And so the elders of the church, I kid you not, went door to door to people's houses and said, look, if you don't tithe, we will lose the church and people will starve. High stakes. If you don't tithe, we will lose the church and people will starve. We won't be able to pay the mortgage. That's the way that it is. I cannot imagine at all having people go door to door to you people. I can't imagine how offended you would be. I can't imagine if it wasn't this room of people, it was another room of Christians. Culturally, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard, that that would be okay in a local church to go and talk to people and say, look, you've got to tithe or we're going to lose the whole thing. And people tithed. Some people increased their giving. I kid you not, during the Great Depression, and there's literally a monument to it downtown. There's a church that survived and actually managed to feed many people who were in serious need because of the faithfulness of people in the community and the generosity that they had. Now, I got to tell you, you can either say that those people are stupid, right? Because it's the Great Depression and you really should be taking care of yourself and you shouldn't just be giving away all of your extra money or even money that you actually need to feed your own family. You should look out for yourself. You could either say that's the case or you could say those people are geniuses, they put their hope on God. That's it. They took hold of the life that really is life, and they let go of the stuff that doesn't matter. And as a result, not only did they thrive in a time where an awful lot of people killed themselves, which is true, because they just didn't have enough money, and that seemed like a reason to kill yourself. Not only did they survive, but a lot of other people were blessed and survived as a result. That church, by the way, is now Hillsong, which I think is really fun. It's doing just fine in downtown Phoenix. It's amazing what people have done in the history of the church. It's amazing what people do when they set their hope on the Lord and they take, hope, take hold of the life that really is life, it's a way, little by little, we reorder our loves. Giving money away is a way of saying, look, this, is, this isn't something that matters nearly as much as the people I'm trying to love and bless with it. This isn't something that matters nearly as much as the God who I'm trying to serve by giving it away. This isn't something that matters nearly as much as the rest of my life. The love of money, friends, is at the root of all kinds of evil. Watch out. Take hold of the life that really is life. And you'll find that you have a hope that is unshakable. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.